Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to our Midweek Bible Study 2022 Summer Edition. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's a joy and an honor to be with you again today. Thanks for joining me. Today is Wednesday, July 13th. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, taking on tough issues. In last week's study, we discussed the lifestyle that we're to follow as Christians. We were reminded by the Apostle Paul to run from sexual sin and glorify God with our bodies. These words of Paul are still relevant as today's society is facing the same moral decline. Today in part six, we're going a step further and we'll see what Paul's writings say about marriage and the status of that sacred institution. Got a lot to share with you today, but as always, we start with a word of prayer. So join me together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise your holy name. Thank you for all that you have done and continue to do. We are so grateful to have the privilege of studying your word today. Thanks for all that have come to join this opportunity. Bless them, Father, and may we open our hearts to receive your truth today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You know, our upbringing, the media, and society are a few of the things that influence our view of marriage and the commitment it requires. There are many who would like to change the definition of marriage and downplay its importance. Paul would have us turn our hearts back to God, the creator of marriage, to rediscover the sacred institution's true definition and purpose. Here's a few opening questions designed to help us share our thoughts about marriage. Question number one. When you were a teenager, who had the marriage that you secretly hoped yours would be like one day? Was it your parents? Maybe an older sibling and spouse? Maybe it was a neighbor couple or a celebrity couple. How about a couple at church? Or maybe you weren't thinking about marriage at all as a teenager. But if you were, who had the marriage that you secretly hoped yours would be like one day? Honestly, for me as a teenager, I really don't remember ever thinking about marriage in the way that this question suggests. But if I have to give you an answer, I guess it would be one like the marriage portrayed on TV, like Ozzie and Harriet, or the Donna Reed Show, or Leave it to Beaver. All those had some very dynamic marriage relationships, husband and wife, that were really, really cool, actually. And my folks were great, too, but I just never thought about them in this context, and nor did I think about marriage as a teenager. All right, let's move on to question two. Finish this sentence. The most important thing about marriage to me is what? The most important thing about marriage to me is that it is Christ-centered. And to my way of thinking, you can only have a Christ-centered marriage if both spouses are saved and actively growing in their individual walks with God. All right, let's jump into this Bible study a little deeper. Let's get to today's scripture passage. We'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, and also in chapter 7, verses 32 through 35. And in these passages, Paul teaches us about sharing our life with our mate. Marriage was the first community God established on this earth. This shows the importance that God places on the institution of marriage. So let's read these passages in 1 Corinthians 7. And while we're doing that, I want you to note what is involved in being fully committed to a marriage relationship. Are you ready? Let's go. Open those Bibles or Bible apps to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, and follow along as I read. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, 
Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God, of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Now let's move a little bit ahead. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Amen. A large chunk of scripture today, but we're going to go through all of it right now. Are you ready? Here we go. Study question number one. From the scripture passage, what word would you use to describe Paul's attitude about sex and marriage? Would it be prudish? Do you think in a word it would be pragmatic or Paul's attitude would be dispassionate or maybe understanding? Maybe you might consider it chauvinistic, perhaps spiritual. What word would you use from this passage we just read to describe Paul's attitude about sex and marriage? I would say the word would be complementary, meaning sex and marriage is complementary to each other. Marriage provides God's way to satisfy natural sexual desires 
and to strengthen the partners against temptation. Number two, look at verses three and four. They read, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Here's the question. What do these verses say about a husband and wife's responsibility to each other regarding sex? And why is this perspective important? Paul is revealing God's will about sex within marriage here. He has rejected the idea that married Christians should abstain from sex. Early heresies, such as Gnosticism, claimed that the body was evil and sex should be avoided, even in marriage. In fact, Scripture says the opposite is true because of the temptation to participate in sexual sin. In verse 3, Paul wrote that husbands and wives must give sex to each other. In various Bibles, this is translated as conjugal rights or marital duty. In verse 4, Paul explains why this is true using the language of authority. Neither husbands nor wives are entirely independent over their own bodies when it comes to sex. Instead, the wife has authority over her husband's body and vice versa. The Bible's teaching on this subject runs counter to both the culture of Paul's day and to our own. This is a uniquely Christian idea for several reasons. First, in many cultures then and now, a wife's body was thought to be the explicit property of her husband, but categorically not the other way around. In some cases, cultures essentially considered quote-unquote male adultery non-existent, requiring fidelity only of the woman. But in Christian teaching, both parties in marriage are so closely connected as if one person, you can check out Genesis 2.24, that they have mutual authority over each other's bodies. This is opposite of male dominance of women. This specific verse focuses on that idea of mutual submission in one specific area of marriage. Second, especially in modern times and places, culture often recoils at the suggestion that a person does not have absolute unrestricted control over his or her own body. Christian teaching, though, is clear about this idea. Paul wrote in chapter 6 that as Christians, we do not own our bodies because God purchased us from sin and death with the blood of Jesus. The two primary expressions of this are in avoidance of sin and the mutual expression of sexuality in marriage. Marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and those who have been redeemed in the church. In that picture, both the redeemed husband and the redeemed wife surrender their right to exercise authority over their own bodies in this specific area as part of their marriage commitment to become one. Number three, verse five reads, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you are both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's the question. According to this verse, what is the only time spouses should abstain from sexual intimacy? The only time would be if the spouses mutually agree to abstain from sex for a limited time so they could devote themselves to prayer. 
Times of devoted prayer to God are vital for all believers. Some may feel that they should do this with total focus on God, and so they abstain from sex or even food, if that's the case. That's the time of fasting that we normally refer to. Paul says this is a commendable thing, but he also says that once that time is over, once it has concluded, sexual activity should resume. Paul seems to assume that human beings who experience strong sexual desire will struggle with self-control after a while. He also reveals that Satan will take advantage of that struggle to tempt Christians with sexual sin. The closest thing to a rule or schedule Paul offers then seems to be that sex between spouses ought to happen with some mutually agreed frequency. Number four, verses eight and nine read, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Here's the question. In these verses, Paul begins to speak to various people's specific situations. First, he addressed those who weren't married or widows and widowers. In verse 8, why does Paul say to those who aren't married and widows, it's better to stay unmarried? And do Paul's words in verse 9 somehow lessen the importance of marriage? Paul's single-minded focus was always on God's kingdom and service to it. So his advice to the believers in Corinth was centered on his concern for their ability to bear up under persecution for their faith and to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. As a side note, in 1 Timothy 5, 4, different place, different situation, Paul counseled the younger widows, in fact, to marry. So Paul suggested to those presently not bound in marriage that it would be better to stay unmarried as he was. But if they found that they couldn't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. The Corinthians seem to have a problem with self-control, as we talked about last week, and is also suggested by the kind of sexual immorality that was all too common in the city. The believers came out of that lifestyle, yet probably many still were struggling with their sinful nature in that area. Paul wasn't suggesting enforced celibacy on those people. Instead, he told married people to give themselves to each other. He told single people to try to use their singleness as an opportunity to give all they have to the Lord. Yet he also understood that those who struggled with self-control should not put themselves in the position of enforced celibacy, for Satan would use many temptations right there in the city to bring them down. Instead, Paul said these people should marry so they wouldn't burn with lust. This is not a put-down of marriage as being no more than a legitimate way to release sexual pressure. Instead, it's tied with the gifts of marriage and singleness that Paul mentioned here in verse 7. Those choosing to remain unmarried should make the choice based on the gifts God has given to them specifically. Those who choose marriage or who are already married, however, should continue to honor their marriage commitments as explained in the following verses. Number five, verses 10 and 11. But for those who are married... I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Here's the question. In these verses, Paul shifts his focus to married people and he addresses divorce. What is he saying? 
He explains to the Corinthian believers the Christian view of divorce, given as a command from the Lord. Jesus had taught about divorce during his time on earth. If you have a moment, check out Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18. So Jesus, again, had taught about divorce during his time on earth, saying that married people were not meant to be divorced, and that was not God's plan for married people. So Paul explained that a wife must not leave her husband. Apparently, it was possible in the Greco-Roman culture for a wife to leave her husband. In Jewish culture, divorce laws focused on the husband separating from his wife. If a woman has already separated from her husband, she should remain single or go back to her husband. She does not have the option to marry another man. In the same way, the husband must not leave his wife. Paul is clear throughout the passage that Christians who are married should stay married. Neither of these verses is commentary on all divorces for all reasons, nor are they statements about all marriages for all reasons. The underlying principles are important, but not meant to be taken carelessly. Number six, verses 12 and 13. They say, Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. If a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Here's the question. Now Paul turns his attention to the rest of the people, the people who were married but felt single because their spouses were unbelievers. How does he say these people should handle the situation? Well, clearly there were couples in the Corinthian church who were in this situation. Paul said he did not have a direct command from the Lord in this. So he did what all believers should do when scripture doesn't state exactly what must be done in a particular situation. He inferred what should be done from what scripture does say. Paul based his advice on God's command about marriage and applied them to the situation the Corinthians were facing. Because of their desire to serve Christ, some people in the Corinthian church thought they ought to divorce their unbelieving spouses and marry Christians. But Paul affirmed the marriage commitment. God's ideal is for marriages to stay together. Even then, one spouse is not a believer. To leave the marriage, even for the noblest of goals in serving the Lord, would actually be to disobey God's express command regarding marriage. For more, you can check out Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. Instead, the believing spouse should try to win the other to Christ. It would be easy to rationalize leaving, but Paul makes a strong case for staying with the unbelieving spouse and being a positive influence on the marriage. Paul, like Jesus, believed that marriage is permanent. Paul commanded this for the believers in the church whose unbelieving spouses were willing to continue living with them. Number seven, verse 14 reads, For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. Here's the question. In this verse, Paul states the reason for these couples to stay together. What is that reason? In a nutshell, the reason is that the Christian spouse brings holiness to the marriage. Let me share more. It's important to note that holiness 
does not carry the meaning of salvation. Paul is not saying a person's unbelieving spouse and children are eternally saved simply by being married to or parented by a Christian. Saving faith cannot be borrowed, inherited, or willed to someone else. Scripture is clear, the teaching is clear, that individuals must come to faith in Christ on their own in order to receive the grace of God's forgiveness of sin. Now, Paul affirmed that when believers have sexual relations with their unbelieving spouse, the unbelievers are blessed in a certain way. The marriage and its sexual relations set up to lead into the possibility of the conversion of the believer. Blessings that flow to believers don't stop there, but extend to others. Among those most likely to receive benefits from the godly influence of believers' lives are the children. God regards the marriage as holy by the presence of one Christian spouse. Paul calls the children of such a marriage set apart because of God's blessing on the family. The believing parent, called upon to raise his or her children in the faith, will hopefully have such an influence that the children will accept salvation for themselves. Number eight, verse 15 says, but if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Here's the question. In the previous verses, we saw that the believing spouse must not leave the marriage if the unbeliever wants to stay married. But in this verse, the opposite seems to be happening. Explain. In this case, the unbeliever may decide that because his or her spouse has become a Christian, the marriage should be dissolved. In this case, the believer's only choice would be to deny faith in Jesus Christ in order to maintain the marriage or maintain faith in Christ and let the marriage be dissolved. As difficult as it might be, and as much as marriage is sanctified by God, the high calling of God must not be denied for any reason. So the believer must let the unbeliever go. This may be the second exception to remarriage along with adultery. You can check out Matthew 5 verses 31 and 32 for more. So the Christian man or woman can allow the divorce to happen and not be disobeying God. Number nine, look at verse 16. It says, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Here's the question. Here Paul gives another reason for believers to try not to dissolve their marriage. What is it? The reason Paul gives is that the believers can be a good influence on their spouse. The intimacy and day-to-dayness of marriage provide lots of opportunities for the Christian to be a powerful witness to his or her spouse. Paul reminded them that it can be so powerful that the unbelieving wife or husband might be saved because of the faithful testimony of the believing wives and husbands. Number 10. Now let's look at verses 32 through 34. They read, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and think how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or who has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. 
but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. Here's the question about these verses. In these verses, Paul is speaking about spousal responsibilities. In a nutshell, what is he saying? I believe Paul is saying that marriage is a tremendous responsibility for each of the spouses involved. For a marriage to be successful, husband and wife must work at their relationship. They will both have to be concerned about earthly responsibilities and about how to please each other. This is good. This is important for those who are married. Paul also pointed out that unmarried people can focus their energies elsewhere. Now for our last question today, look at verse 35. Number 11, verse 35, it says, I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. So here's the question. Here Paul clarifies his previous comments. What is Paul's overriding point here in verse 35? For the sake of clarity, Paul says he is not writing this as a command. He's not using his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to tell unmarried people not to marry. He offers this instruction to his readers in order to be helpful to them in considering whether to get married or not. He says he wants to promote good order among them. Given what's been said in prior verses, this likely means Paul wants Christians to make marriage choices for appropriate reasons. Whether they marry or stay single, his intent is for believers to do so for the right reasons. Of course, Paul has his personal preference. He probably hopes more Christians will choose to remain single and take advantage of the opportunity to experience undivided devotion to the Lord. Well, this has been an amazing journey today, folks. There's a lot we've talked about but we've come to the end of our study today about marriage. Let's recap what we talked about. Today, we looked at Paul's views on marriage as he tried to clear up some misunderstandings in the Corinthian church regarding sexual immorality. And we were reminded that we need to take seriously the commitments of marriage and that a marriage is a calling and a gift from God. Next time, we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 27, and we'll focus on Paul's example of discipline in the Christian life and how important this can be in spreading the gospel. Folks, thanks for joining me today. I genuinely appreciate it. We are very grateful that you are with us. Please take care. Have an amazing rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.